This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear City Lovers by Nadine Gordimer. She sewed swiftly in and out through the four holes of the button with firm, fluent movements of the right hand, her gestures supplying an articulacy missing from her talk. The story was chosen by Tessa Hadley, whose stories have been appearing regularly in The New Yorker for a decade, and whose readings are frequently featured in the tablet edition of the magazine. Her most recent novels are The London Train and The Master Bedroom. Hi, Tessa. Hi, Deborah. Nadine Gordimer is going to turn 90 next year, and she's, she's been publishing since the early 1950s. Have you been a lifelong fan of her work? Well, I'm sort of too young to be a, a, quite a lifelong fan Not of her, her life, work, your life. <laughs> yes, my, for my life. It, it was a very important moment when I found her because I had only really loved old books, and that seems sort of extraordinary now, but, but I guess if you do an English literature degree and you, you read the classics, suddenly I discovered, actually through a recommendation, this writer whose books felt as big as Tolstoy, to me, you know, their scale, their kind of moral scope. But more than that, I learned two things at once. I learned this new writer and I learned South Africa, about which I knew next to nothing. I had a few vaguely political write-on ideas. But so these two initiations coming at once, very, very powerful memory for me, actually. I guess I was 23, 24, something like that. What was the first thing of hers that you read? A Guest of Honour, wonderful mm-hmm. novel set in a an unnamed, newly independent African country in which a a white colonial administrator of a very leftist, visionary kind sort of stayed to watch the country in its early years of independence and is a very political book, but it's such an exciting book about love and place and sex and mind. It's a marvellous book. I haven't reread it for a while, but I... Hoping, I'm sure it's still a huge <laughs> thing waiting there to be rediscovered. Now, Gordimer won the Booker Prize in 1974, I, I think, for The Conservationist. Mm. Um, at a time when, when apartheid was still in full force in South Africa, was she well-known in mm. the UK before that point, do you think? That would have been before you were reading her. I'm not sure that I quite know the answer to that, but I suspect she was. I I think, I mean, that British-South Africa connection, you know, for obvious literal reasons, London was full of white South African exiles, some black South African exiles. The news from South Africa was always coming and she was such a spokesperson at that point. It got more fraught later when elements of the Black Liberation Movement sort of rejected, if you like, the, the white writers and spokespersons right. for that movement. But in the 60s, that stuff hadn't really started to happen. Well, there's a, a recent story of yours, which which we ran in The New Yorker, called The Stain, that involves a, uh, a former South African Defence Force officer who's, who's guilty of some kind of atrocity under apartheid and who's hiding from his past in England. Do you think that there was a little bit of Gordimer influence on you when you were writing that? Yes, I mean, in the most sort of modest way, that was a tiny little secret gesture to myself of of homage to her because because one of the things I think she can teach us is how to write politically without becoming shrill. Now, it's a very, very different matter from somebody at the heart of 
South African politics like her and somebody at the periphery, in a way, as I think UK writers sometimes feel. They're a little bit at the periphery of global contemporary politics. So it's it's a hugely different issue, but I actually do think that her lessons, her... The way she finds in a story like the one I'm going to read of being intensely political, intensely moral, without shrillness, without outrage, strangely enough. Or that's maybe we'll talk about that more because the question of whether the story is outraged or not, whether you can write outrage is a really interesting one. And the story that you are going to read, City Lovers, was written in 1975. What makes that one stand out in your memory? For me, it just catches the two sides of the thing she does best. It's so direct about something political, something historical in the world, and yet it's also about bodies, individuals, sex. And, of course, that is the very subject of the story, is the meeting place of the natural, the animal, the the flesh, with the overlay of culture and social identity, but that makes it sound a bit boring because it's utterly, utterly compelling. (laughs) Well, we'll talk some more after the story. Now here's Tessa Hadley reading City Lovers by Nadine Gordimer. Dr Franz Josef von Leinsdorf is a geologist absorbed in his work, wrapped up in it, as the saying goes. Year after year, the experience of this work enfolds him, swaddling him away from the landscapes, the cities and the people of Peru, New Zealand, the United States or wherever else he may live. He's always been like that, his mother could confirm from their native Austria. Even as a small boy, he seemed to present only his profile to her, turned away to his bits of rock and stone. His few relaxations have not changed much since then, an occasional skiing trip, listening to music, reading poetry. Rainer Maria Rilke once stayed in his grandmother's hunting lodge in the forests of Styria, and the boy was introduced to Rilke's poems while very young. Now he has been in Africa for almost seven years, first on the Côte d'Ivoire and then for the past five years in South Africa. A shortage of skilled manpower brought about his recruitment here. He has no interest in the politics of the countries he works in. His private preoccupation within the preoccupation of his work has been research into underground watercourses. But the mining company that employs him in a senior capacity is interested only in mineral discovery. He is much out in the field, the veldt here, seeking new gold, copper, platinum and uranium deposits. When he is at home on this particular job, he lives in a three-room flat in a suburban block with a landscaped central garden and does his shopping at a supermarket across the street. He is not married yet. That is how his colleagues and the typists and secretaries at the mining company's head office would define his situation. Both men and women would describe him as a good-looking man in a foreign way. The lower half of his face is dark and middle-aged, His mouth is thin and curving, and no matter how closely he shaves, his beard shows like fine shot embedded in the skin around his mouth and chin. And the upper half, contradictorily young. He has deep-set eyes, some would say grey, some black, 
and thick eyelashes and brows, a tangled gaze through which concentration and thoughtfulness perhaps appear as languor. The women in his office say that he's not unattractive. Although the gaze seems to contain promise, he has never invited any of them to go out with him. There is a general assumption he probably has a girl who's been picked for him back home in Europe, where he comes from, that he's bespoken by one of his own kind. It is understood that many of these well-educated Europeans have no intention of becoming permanent immigrants. Colonial life doesn't appeal to them. One advantage, at least, of living in underdeveloped or half-developed countries is that most flats are serviced. Resident cleaners come in every day. All Dr. von Leinsdorf has to do for himself is buy his own supplies and cook an evening meal if he doesn't want to go to a restaurant. He simply drops into the supermarket on his way from his car to his flat after work in the afternoon and wheels a shopping cart down the aisles. At the cashier's counters there are racks of small, uncategorised items for last-minute purchase. Here, as a coloured girl cashier punches the register... He has quickly accustomed himself to South African use of coloured to distinguish people of mixed blood from those of pure African descent. He sometimes picks up cigarettes and perhaps a packet of salted nuts or a bar of nugget. One evening in winter he saw that the cardboard display board was empty of the brand of razor blades he preferred and he drew the cashier's attention to this. These young coloured girls were usually unhelpful taking money and punching their machines in a manner that asserted, with the time-serving obstinacy of the half-literate, a limit of any responsibility toward customers. But this particular girl glanced over the selection of razor blades, explained that she was not allowed to leave her post, and said she would see that the stock was replenished next time. A day or two later, she recognised him as he took his turn before her counter. "'I asked them,' she said gravely, but it's out of stock. You can't get it. I did ask about it. He said it didn't matter. When it comes in, she said, I can keep a few packets for you. He thanked her. He was away with the prospectors the whole of the next week. He arrived back in town just before nightfall on Friday and was on the way from his car to his flat, arms filled with briefcase, suitcase and two canvas bags, when someone stopped him by standing timidly in his path. He was about to dodge round unseeingly on the pavement, but she spoke. "'We got the blades in now. I didn't see you in the shop this week, but I kept some for when you come, so...' He recognised her. He had never seen her outdoors before, and she was wearing a coat. She was rather small and finely made for one of them.' The coat was skimpy, but she did not show a typical big backside. The cold brought a graining of warm colour to her cheekbones, beneath which her very small face was quite delicately hollowed. Her skin was smooth, the subdued satiny colour of certain yellow wood. She had crepey hair, but it was drawn back flat into a little knot and pushed into one of the cheap wool nets that he recognised as being among the miscellany of small goods along with the razor blades, on sale at the supermarket. He said, Thanks. He was in a hurry. He'd only just got back from a trip. He shifted the burdens he was carrying to demonstrate. She said, But if you want, 
I can run in and get the blades for you quickly, if you want. He saw at once that all the girl meant was that she would go back to the supermarket, buy the blades, and bring the packet to him where he stood on the pavement. It was this certainty that made him say, in the kindly tone used for an obliging underling, I live just across there, Atlantis, that flat building. Could you drop them by for me? Number 718, 7th floor? He gave her a one-rand note. She had never been inside one of these big, flat buildings. She lived a bus and train ride away to the west of the city, but this side of the black townships, in a township reserved for people her tint. In the entrance of the building called Atlantis there was a pool with real ferns, not plastic, and even a little waterfall pumping over rocks. She didn't wait for the lift marked goods, but took the one for whites. A white woman with one of those sausage dogs on a leash got in with her but did not pay her any attention. The corridors leading to the flats were nicely glassed in, not draughty. He decided he should give her a twenty-cent piece for her trouble. Ten cents would be right for a black. But she said, Oh, no, please, standing outside his open door and awkwardly pushing back into his hand the change from the money he'd given her. She was smiling for the first time, in the dignity of refusing a tip. It was difficult to know how to treat these people in this country, difficult to know what they expected. In spite of her embarrassing refusal of the tip, she still stood there, unassuming, with her fists thrust down the pockets of her cheap coat. Her rather pretty thin legs were neatly aligned, knee to knee, ankle to ankle, "'Would you like a cup of coffee or something?' he said. "'He couldn't very well take her into his living room and offer her a drink. "'She followed him to his kitchen, "'but at the sight of her pulling out the single chair there "'to drink her cup of coffee at the kitchen table, he said, "'No, bring it in here,' and led the way "'into the big room where, among his books and his papers, his files of scientific correspondence and the cigar boxes of stamps from the envelopes, his racks of records and his specimens of minerals and rocks, he lived alone. It was no trouble to her. She saved him the trips to the supermarket and brought him his groceries two or three times a week. All he had to do was leave a list and the key under the doormat and she would come up in her lunch hour to collect them, returning after work to put away his supplies in the flat. Sometimes he was home and sometimes not. He bought a box of chocolates and left it with a note for her to find. That was acceptable, apparently, as a gratuity. When they were there together, he saw that her eyes went over everything in the flat, although her body seemed to try to conceal its sense of being out of place by remaining as still as possible. Sitting in a chair, she was like a coat laid there until its owner takes it up to go. "'You collect?' she said one day, looking at the stones and bits of rock that took the place of the pretty ornaments she would have expected in such a setting. "'Well, these are specimens, connected with my work. "'My brother used to collect miniatures,' with brandy and whiskey and that in them, from all over, different countries. The second time they had coffee together, she watched him grinding the beans and said, 
You always do that, always when you make coffee. But of course, is it no good for you? Do I make it too strong? Oh, it's just I'm not used to it. We buy it ready, you know. Coffee essence, it's in a bottle. You just add a bit to the milk or water. He laughed. That's not coffee, he said. That's a liquid synthetically flavoured. In my country, we drink only real coffee fresh from the beans. You smell how good it is as it's being ground? One day she was stopped by the caretaker and asked what she wanted in the building. Heavy with the bona fides of groceries clutched to her body, she said she was working at number 718 on the seventh floor. The caretaker did not tell her not to use the white's lift. After all, she was not black. Her family was very light-skinned. One day there was the item grey button for trousers on one of his shopping lists. As she unpacked the shopping basket in the flat, she said, Give me the pants then, and spread them on her lap as she sat on his sofa, which was always gritty with fragments of pipe tobacco. She sewed swiftly in and out through the four holes of the button with firm, fluent movements of the right hand, her gestures supplying an articulacy missing from her talk. She had a little gap, a peasant's gap, he thought of it, between her two front teeth when she smiled. He didn't much like this. But when her face was turned away to a three-quarter angle, with her eyes cast down in concentration and her soft lips almost closed, it didn't matter. Watching her so, he said, You're a good girl, and touched her. She remade the bed every late afternoon when they left it, and she dressed again before she went home. After a week, there was a day when late afternoon became evening and they were still in the bed. Can't you stay the night? My mother, she said. Phone her. Make an excuse. He was a foreigner. He had been in the country five years, but he didn't yet understand that where she lived, people didn't have telephones in their houses. She got up to dress. He didn't want that tender body to go out in the night cold and kept hindering her with his hands, saying nothing. Before she put on her coat, when the body had already disappeared, he spoke. But you must make some arrangement. Oh, my mother. Her face showed a fear and vacancy he could not read. Did the mother still think of her daughter as some pure and unsullied virgin? Why, he said. The girl said, She'll be scared. She'll be scared we get caught. Don't tell her anything, he said. Say, I'm employing you. In his building there were rooms on the roof for tenant servants. She said, That's what I told the caretaker. She ground fresh coffee beans whenever he wanted a cup while he was working at night. She never attempted to cook anything until she had watched him do it the way he liked, and she learned to reproduce exactly the simple dishes he preferred. Sometimes she handled his pieces of rock and stone, at first admiring the colours. It'd make a beautiful ring or a necklace eye. Then he showed her the striations, the formation of each piece, and explained what each stone was and how in the long life of the earth it had been formed. He named the mineral it yielded and what that was used for. 
He worked at his papers, writing, writing every night, so it did not matter that they could not go out together to public places. On Sundays, she got into his car in the basement garage, and they drove to the country and picnicked away up in the Magaliesburg where there was no one. He read or poked about among the rocks. They climbed together to the mountain pools. He taught her to swim. She squealed and shrieked in the water, showing the gap between her teeth as, it crossed his mind, she must when among her own people. Occasionally, he had to go out to dinner at the houses of colleagues from the mining company. She sewed and listened to the radio in the flat, and he found her in the bed, warm and already asleep by the time he came in. He made his way into her body without speaking. She made him welcome without a word. Once he put on evening clothes for a dinner at his country's consulate. Watching him brush one or two fallen hairs from the shoulders of the dark jacket that sat so well on him, she saw a huge room, all chandeliers and people dancing some dance from a costume film, stately, hand in hand. She supposed he was going to fetch a partner for the evening to sit in her place in the car. They never kissed when either of them left the flat. Suddenly, kindly, pausing as he picked up cigarettes and keys, he said, Don't be lonely, and added, Wouldn't you like to visit your family sometimes when I have to go out? He had told her that after Christmas he was going home to his mother in the forests and mountains of his country near the Italian border. He showed her on the map. She had not told him how her mother, not knowing there was any other variety, assumed he was a medical doctor, or how she had talked to her mother about the doctor's children and the doctor's wife, who was a very kind lady, glad to have someone who could help out in the surgery as well as the flat. She remarked wonderingly on his ability to work until midnight or later after a day at work. When she came home from her cash register at the supermarket, she was so tired that once dinner was eaten she could scarcely keep awake. He explained in a way she could understand that while the work she did was repetitive, requiring little mental or physical effort and therefore unrewarding, his work was his greatest interest. It taxed his mental capacities to their limit, exercised all his concentration and rewarded him constantly, as much with the excitement of a problem presented as with the satisfaction of a problem solved. Later, putting away his papers, speaking out of a silence, he said, "'Have you done other kinds of work?' She said, "'I was in a clothing factory before. Sports bow shirts, you know? But the pay is better in the shop.' "'Of course.' Being a conscientious newspaper reader, he was aware that it was only recently that the retail trade here had been allowed to employ coloureds as shop assistants. Even punching a cash register represented advancement. With the continuing shortage of semi-skilled whites, a girl like this might be able to edge a little further into the white-collar category. He began to teach her to type. He was aware that her English was poor, but because he was a foreigner, her pronunciation did not offend him nor categorise her. He corrected her grammatical mistakes, but missed the less obvious ones because of his own sometimes unusual English usage. She continued to use the singular it for the plural they. Because he was a foreigner, although so clever she saw, 
She was less inhibited than she might have been by the words she knew she misspelled in her typing. While she sat at the typewriter, she thought how one day she would type notes for him as well as making coffee the way he liked it and taking him inside her body without saying anything and sitting, even if only through the empty streets of quiet Sundays, beside him in his car, like a wife. On a summer night near Christmas... He had already bought and hidden a slightly showy but good watch he thought she would like. There was a knocking at the door that brought her out of the bathroom and him to his feet at his work table. During the day it might have been a canvasser or a hawker, but no one ever came to the flat at night. He was not at home to friends. The summons was an imperious banging that clearly would not stop until the door was opened. Wearing a big bath towel, she stood in the bathroom doorway, gazing at him across the passage into the living room. Her feet and shoulders were bare. She said nothing, did not even whisper. The flat seemed to shake with the strong, unhurried blows. He made as if to go to the door at last, but now she ran and clutched him by both arms, she shook her head wildly. Her lips drew back, but her teeth were clenched. She didn't speak. She pulled him into the bedroom, snatched some clothes from the clean laundry laid out on the bed, and got into the built-in wardrobe, thrusting the key at his hand. His arms and calves felt weak and cold, but he was distastefully embarrassed at the sight of her crouching there under his suits and coats. It was horrible and ridiculous. "'Come out!' he whispered. No, come out. Where, she said, where can I go? Never mind, get out of there. He put out his hand to grasp her. At bay, bearing the gap in her teeth, she said in a terrible whisper, I'll throw myself out the window. She forced the key into his hand like the handle of a knife. He closed the door on her face and drove the key home in the lock, then dropped it among the coins in his trouser pocket. He unslotted the chain that was looped across the entrance door of the flat. He turned the serrated knob of the Yale lock. Three policemen, two in plain clothes, stood there without impatience, although they had been banging on the door for several minutes. One of the plain clothes men a big dark man with an elaborate moustache, held out in a hand wearing a plaited gilt ring some sort of identity card. What is it? Dr von Leinsdorf said quietly, the blood coming strangely back to legs and arms. The sergeant told him they knew there was a coloured girl in the flat. They had had information. I've been watching this flat three months, he said. I know. I am alone here. Dr. von Leinsdorf did not raise his voice. I know, I know who is here. Come. And the sergeant and his two assistants passed him and moved systematically through the living room, the kitchen, the bathroom. The sergeant picked up a bottle of aftershave cologne and seemed to study the French label and entered the bedroom. The assistants removed the clean laundry that was laid upon the bed and then turned back the bedding, carrying the sheets over to be examined by the sergeant under the lamp. They talked to one another in Afrikaans, which the doctor did not understand. The sergeant himself looked under the bed and lifted the long curtains at the window. 
The built-in wardrobe was of the kind that has no knobs. He saw that it was closed and began to ask in Afrikaans, then politely changed to English, Give us the key. Dr. von Leinsdorf said, I'm sorry, I left it at my office. I always lock up and take my keys with me in the mornings. It's no good, man. You better give me the key. He smiled a little reasonably. It's on my office desk. The assistants produced a screwdriver. And he watched while they inserted it where the wardrobe doors met and gave it a quick leverage. He heard the lock give. She had been naked, it was true, when he had locked her in, but now she was wearing a long-sleeved shirt with an appliqued butterfly motif on one breast and a pair of jeans. Her feet were still bare. In the dark, she had managed to get into some of the clothing she had snatched from the bed, but she had no shoes. She had perhaps been weeping behind the door. Her cheeks looked stained, but now her face was sullen and she was breathing heavily, her diaphragm contracting and expanding exaggeratedly and her breasts pushing against the cloth. She looked angry, but it might simply have been that she was half suffocated in the wardrobe and needed air. She did not look at Dr. von Leinsdorf. She would not reply to the sergeant's questions. They were taken to the police station where they were at once separated and led in turn for examination by the district surgeon. The man's underwear was taken away and examined as the sheets had been for signs of his seed. When the girl was undressed, it was discovered that beneath her jeans she was wearing a pair of men's briefs with his name on the neatly sewn laundry tag. In her haste, she had taken the wrong garment to her hiding place. Now, she cried standing there before the district surgeon in a man's underwear. He courteously pretended not to notice. He handed the briefs, jeans and shirt to someone outside the door and motioned her to lie on a white-sheeted high table where he placed her legs apart, resting in stirrups, and put into her where the other had made his way so warmly a cold, hard instrument that expanded wider and wider. Her body opened. Her thighs and knees trembled uncontrollably while the doctor looked into her and touched her deep inside with other hard instruments carrying wafers of gauze. When she came out of the examining room back to the charge office, Dr. von Leinsdorf was not there. They must have taken him somewhere else. She spent what was left of the night in a cell but early in the morning she was released and taken home to her mother's house in the coloured township. She was driven by a white man who explained he was the clerk of the lawyer who had been engaged for her by Dr. von Leinsdorf. The clerk said Dr. von Leinsdorf had also been bailed out that morning. She was not told when or if she would see him again. A statement made by the girl to the police was handed in to the court when she and the man appeared to meet charges of contravening the Immorality Act in a Johannesburg flat. I lived with the white man in his flat, it read. He had intercourse with me sometimes. He gave me tablets to take to prevent me becoming pregnant. Interviewed by the Sunday papers, the girl said, I'm sorry for the sadness brought to my mother. She said she was one of nine children of a female laundry worker. 
She had left school in Standard Three because there was no money at home for gym clothes or a school blazer. She had worked as a machinist in a factory and a cashier in a supermarket. Dr. von Leinsdorf taught her to type his notes. Dr. Franz Joseph von Leinsdorf described in the newspaper as the grandson of a baroness, a cultured man engaged in international mineralogical research. Said he accepted social distinctions between people, but didn't think they should be legally imposed. Even in my own country, it's difficult for a person from a higher class to marry one from a lower class," he said. The two accused gave no evidence. They did not greet or speak to each other in court. The defence argued that the sergeant's evidence that they had been living together as man and wife was hearsay. The woman with Daxund had reported suspicions, perhaps, or maybe it was the caretaker. The magistrate acquitted them because the state failed to prove that carnal intercourse had taken place on the stated night. In the Sunday papers, there was a photograph of the girl's mother, who was quoted as saying, "I won't let my daughter work as a servant for a white man again." That was Tessa Hadley reading City Lovers by Nadine Gordimer, which was published in the New Yorker in 1975 and collected in Six Feet of the Country, published by Penguin. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of the New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead, Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow the writer's voice wherever you get your podcasts. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of "Have you saved up enough?", shouldn't they be asking, "What is it that you love to do, and how can we help you keep doing it?" The truth is, you're not slowing down, so your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future, so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com/actionplan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker/dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors Inc. Copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. So Tessa, what do you think about the way that that Gordimer positions the narrative voice here? The story is told in the third person. There's some sense that the speaker is an omniscient narrator. At the same time we're moving in and out of of both characters' minds. And how should we read lines that are said in the third person, but that have some perspective. You know, things like colored girls were usually unhelpful, or that the time-serving obstinacy of the half-literate, or she was small and finely made for one of them. You know, the, how, how do you read those? 
those particular lines you've just quoted, I think they're him. That's his thought. So that's one of the places where we've moved inside his thoughts. You, you've begun with the thing that first occurs to one reading it, this omniscience of the narrative, which is almost forensic in a way. I mean, there's a, a definite sense of observation there. She's coolly watching. That's what she's doing. It, it, she is watching both of them. And when she watches them, she also has access inside their heads, much more inside his than hers, but very seamlessly in a way that, you know, it isn't always acceptable now to move so smoothly from inside one head to inside the other. It works utterly fluently, I think, inside this story. But where is Gordon Marsh? She's the anthropologist, I think. That's mm. what it feels like to me. If that doesn't sound cold or detached, because there's nothing cold about this story. But she seems to have this sort of almost X-ray vision into the situation which she has invented and put on the page. And it's as if every detail that comes up tells us so much about these two people. I don't think there's any imbalance of sympathy between them. It's funny, I think when I read it years ago, I thought the story leaned towards his perspective, and I don't think that anymore. I think it's absolutely as coolly detached about pinning him down, what he is and what he comes from, as it is about her. Do you think she wants us to have sympathy for him? I think we're sympathetic to both of them, actually. Yes, I think she likes him. Mm -hmm. I, I think she enjoys his education, his intelligence. She likes the audacity that they both have to seize that moment, which exists in a kind of interstices between their two worlds. Both of them have the good instinct to seize the possibility that's there between them. At the same time, it's a terrible instinct somehow. <laughs> I mean, things would be much better if they just passed this up. Or would they? That's a brilliant... That, yes, what's the answer to that question? Would it be better if the story never happened? And, of course, in terms of its consequences, yes, it would. It has hideous, unspeakable consequences. But, no, I think, actually, the morality of the story is that it's the deepest, best part of both of them that they know how to take it, actually. But mm. I don't... You know, I can see a different reading. Do you think that, or do you think... Do you read it differently? It's a difficult story for me to read because it's not entirely bleak, uh, and yet it's bleak Yeah. if you just look at it from the outside. From the clinical point of view, everything that's done is the wrong thing. From a narrative, personal, emotional point of view, perhaps everything that's done is the right thing. Yes. I think she that's the kind of writer she is in a way, and... I think often in lots of her writing, what she maps out is this terrain where the outer life is pretty horrendous and terrifying. And what people snatch is this secret life. Somewhere she's written that writing politics was a pressure on her. She would have, in another life, gone on to be a writer about the private life, the inward life. Mm. Of course, the benefit for us, her readers, is that these two things come together. It's like a great underground river carving out mountains. And we can't, we can't wish them not to have come together. Not, not just because, of course, there would be no story. That's where story <laughs> lies. But 
actually because what a changing thing it is mm-hmm. for both of them, I think, both of them. I don't believe he's got some girl back at home in Austria who is going to give him what he finds in this girl. He doesn't know that. He'll never know it about himself. He's quite an unself-knowing man. What's in it for the girl here? You know, why is she drawn to this man? She doesn't want his money. Hmm. She doesn't actually seem especially sexually oriented. You know, she wants to be accommodating. There's no sense of her enjoyment in it. What does draw her to this man specifically? He asks her for razor blades. There are none. Why does she want to please him? I think one of the things she sees when she's sitting there punching at her cash register with her customers going past, the first thing she sees is his Europeanness. He actually doesn't look at her like a South African. Mm-hmm. So in some sense, in his gaze, she is not defined by being coloured. I think that's a little bit of it. Mm-hmm. I think that's why she picks him out first and probably treats her with an interesting courtesy which on further examination, we discover, is a courtesy that comes out of a very hierarchical society. He's treating her like a peasant, actually, but it's different to what she's used to. Race doesn't come into it, actually, not significantly for him. Right. But then secondly, I think one credits the girl with actually a huge, underused imagination. She's deeply moved by his life, his life in that flat, by his engagement with his work, which Gordimer writes about very beautifully, I think, his happiness working in the kind of work that feeds him. She she can't imagine that for herself, but it satisfies something that she's perhaps dreamed of, glimpsed. I mean, some of her dreams of his life are are just wrong, of course, Mm -hmm. because she's ignorant, so she thinks he's going to a kind of ball when he's going out (laughs) to some boring reception at the consulate and so on. But it feeds her nonetheless. His otherness, that excites her, because she's imaginative. Uh, And also the, the sort of playing at being his wife. I mean, she's, of the two of them, she seems the most awake to the reality of the situation. She knows she won't be his wife. On some level, it feels to me as though she's losing time on this. She knows it's hopeless. Yes, but it's worth having. Yeah. It's worth having, however it's bound to end. She doesn't make any silly plans. She has no dream. To be fair, I don't think he does either. He has no plans to take her home to Austria. She has no plans because she knows it's not even thinkable. And that's what they both do. And I think this is one of Gordimer's sort of more hidden stories that crops up again and again, the sense that almost because a relationship cannot exist inside a framework, inside the outer cultural context, it gains in truthfulness. She has funny, strange stories. I've forgotten the name of the particular one I'm thinking of, where a love affair between an activist on the run and a, a married white woman is more powerful because it can't exist, because right. it, they can't go out anywhere together. And, and she's also a great writer of adultery, actually. And you'd think, well, adultery is pretty finished by the mid-20th century. You know, what else <laughs> is there to say? It's all right now. You can get divorced and marry each other. But, but no, Gordimer writes superbly, I think, about adultery. So somewhere that's what she conveys to us in the stories that the 
the relationship is made more true by not being defined by any of these false frameworks that we, we, we lay down on top of experience. Von Leinsdorf says something interesting at the end where he, he, he's saying, you know, I fully understand social hierarchies and these, mm. these distinctions, class distinctions, but I don't think they should be imposed by the government. And obviously he's aware of the distinction between the two of them. Do you think that he ever does actually consider her an equal? No, not socially, no. In the flesh, when mm. they're not talking, either of them, in a way that can't be articulated in their language. It's a story all about language, isn't it? First of all, we hear two people who's, for whom English, or if you like, received pronunciation English at any rate, is not their first language. They are both speaking in a code that doesn't fit them completely comfortably. It's not their home language. Often they're misunderstanding each other. He doesn't understand what she's talking about when she's frightened about her mother. He thinks, really, that the mother's still thinking of her daughter as a virgin? It has nothing to do with that, of course. That's not what yeah. the mother's afraid of. So that's really all the time. They can't hear each other's words. Yeah. So what they have instead, you, you could say it was a romanticism of Gordimer's in a way, what they have instead is some exchange as two animals. And there is that lovely moment... The one moment where I think he does treat her as an equal is where he tries to stop her going out into the night with his hands. He can't bear that tender body yeah. being exposed to the night. And he doesn't talk. He just sort of he hangs on to her, her while she gets dressed. Yeah. And I think that's the one moment where we, we sort of really see at length this reciprocity between them that cannot come out in their words because the minute words are in there hierarchy is in there. Why do you think he doesn't want her to hide when the police are outside? Is he really unaware of what, what's waiting for them? It's not explicit in the story, is it, whether he's actually unaware of the legal side. I, I was thinking that when I was reading it, that she doesn't quite tell us. It could be. There's a, the bit where the, where the girl says she'll be scared we get caught. He doesn't react in a way that gives us any clue as to whether he knows about the laws forbidding sexual intercourse between races or is he ignorant of it or is he just indifferent? He is a gentleman, so he is outraged at the idea that anybody can tell him what to do with his body mm. and he finds her fear her habituated fear when she then climbs into the wardrobe, somewhat disgusting, actually. Yeah, he feels yeah. at that point, I think, that she's a peasant and he's a gentleman because he has never learned to be afraid of anybody. And I think that's one of the points at which Gordimer is quite clearly not saying, actually, social hierarchy exists all over the world in all sorts of ways and it has all kinds of expressions and South Africa's just one of those. She says, there are lines drawn and this country with this set of laws, have crossed a line. Mm -hmm. And it disgusts the Austrian in him. He's disgusted by her cravenness. And one of the things that Gautama writes about quite a lot in relation to apartheid is how it sort of distorts people's relations in a really dis a profoundly dysfunctional way that is actually exceptional. And she's, she's absorbed the fear, which he doesn't quite understand. Yeah, it's inside her. Of course it is, yeah. I mean, you mentioned earlier, or Gordimer is a kind of journalist or anthropologist, and I, 
you know, I think even in the the way she uses tiny details, like the the idea that a, a twenty cent tip would be right for a colored girl and a and a black girl would mm. only need ten cent tip and and so on. Somehow, this the story feels to me like a way of of writing about something you couldn't write about journalistically. You wouldn't you wouldn't be allowed to publish, but in fact, she can she can sneak it in to to a piece of fiction. This is where we come down to that thing I said right at the beginning of. How do you write political outrage on the page? I think what stops her writing the story straightforwardly, I mean, it could have been that a really decent man from outside fell in love with the girl cashier and and was outraged by it. It would have written coarsely on the page and a reader often will just wince the minute it sounds like someone's banging a drum or making an obvious case. It's it's really hard to express in relationship to this story because obviously in one sense, yeah, the, the moral of the story is not hidden. It's obvious. It's unambiguous. This is a human outrage. Yeah. But somehow one doesn't feel that she is simply preaching or showing us something obvious or inviting in the reader a ready-made category of response. That's what's so difficult and what she does so wonderfully here. Yeah. Do you, do you know what I mean? I, I do. I mean, I think and that's what she does so wonderfully in all of her fiction. It's this sense of, of taking us inside rather than telling us and yeah. making the outrage our outrage rather than reported outrage. Yes, and in some complicated way actually implicating us in it so that we mm-hmm. don't feel comfortable reading. Mm-hmm. It, it, that's, maybe that's one of the important things. It's so easy to feel a bit smug, isn't it, reading a story that simply illustrates something we already disapprove of and you end up feeling, you know, your prejudice is confirmed, as it were. Right, and that's perhaps why we're made to feel as though I, in our minds we're, we're thinking the coloured girls were usually unhelpful or, you know, those, those thoughts mm. that are a little difficult for, for us mm. to read. There may be a little bit of her, a lot of her, which is enjoying the freedom of being that man without his party pre, without his right thinkingness. Mm-hmm. That that probably feels quite comfortable as a writer too. That's yeah. one of the lovely things about writing is you can enter into him and watch those girls being surly behind the till and not feel, you know, a sort of wince of self loathing as you write it because <laughs> you know <laughs> i expect they were surly behind the till most of them and indeed she gives a sort of expert you know why yeah. and why not at the end the mother says well she's not going to be a servant to another white man you know she's mm. not that's not what the girl is thinking is it yes that ending is fascinating isn't it why does she end it there i mean in the whole of that last paragraph what's happened is the place where they met which is the body warm loving, mutual, that contact in silence outside of all the traps of language. And in fact, then something opposite happens. First of all, that violating passage where the doctor tests her. And it's very brilliant that Gordimer, incidentally, chooses to make that doctor who examines her courteous Mm. and kind as equally the policemen are rather polite what a brilliant stroke you know that a lesser writer would have had the policeman and then the doctor as monstrous and cruel instead here the whole point is it relates to the wider point of the story these are all people who are fulfilling their roles inside a, a system and uh, there's no reason why they shouldn't do that courteously he has the 
delicacy to notice that she's crying in those men pair of underpants and um, he turns away and pretends not to see. Yeah. But what use is that <laughs> in the context? Anyway, where were we? Yes, and then, then we've pretty much now, we are never going to regain that space where language in the story tries to imagine non-language, warmth, contact, mystery... Instead, we are left inside these successive shells of language, aren't we? Where mm. people try to account for what's just happened. First of all, the technicality of the legal procedure, the horrible dead things that both of them say in their statement, yeah. which are flattened, they have no emotional, they have no depth. And then the summary of her life... But we know other things about her. We know how she splashed in the pool and lay warm in the bed and was paralysed by fear. But no, the summary of her life replaces that. And then it ends with, yes, a journalistic summary. And part of the whole point of finishing the story by that is to just draw our attention to this, the way that so many languages crush out value. And the mother's version is fascinating because it actually moralizes what's happened mm. it says oh well that's always what happens if you let your daughter go to a white man that outrage will happen but it's the wrong outrage moral language so often slightly misses its object and that's what literature's for this story catches the true thing that happened that nobody else's language including the two protagonists can actually capture or name but the story does well, thank you, Tessa. Oh, it was a pleasure. All of the stories Tessa Hadley has published in The New Yorker are available online to subscribers, and several of them can be accessed by non-subscribers. You can also hear her reading her more recent stories in the tablet edition of the magazine. Her new collection, Married Love, will be published in the U.S. in November. You can subscribe to this podcast as well as to The New Yorker Out Loud and the Political Scene podcast in the iTunes store. You can also download the weekly audio edition of The New Yorker through iTunes or Audible.com, or join the conversation on our Facebook page. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by NewYorker.com and Curtis Fox Productions. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening. <laughs>